The following podcast is a production of Commercial Investment Real Estate Magazine, the official publication of CCIM Institute. For more on the latest trends, best practices, and continuing education in all areas of the industry, visit our website at ccim.com and sign up for our education e-newsletter. Welcome to another episode of Commercial Investment Real Estate Podcast. I'm Nicholas Leiter, Senior Content Editor of the magazine. In this episode, I spoke with David Bonzer, co-head of Hogan Lovell's Global REIT Practice, who has more than 25 years of experience with real estate investment trusts. He discusses the opportunities and challenges facing REITs in various commercial real estate sectors, including office, retail, and industrial, as well as the impact of continued consolidation in the REIT market. David, first of all, welcome to Commercial Investment Real Estate Podcast, and thank you for joining us. Uh, glad to be here, Nick. Thanks for inviting me. And Now, you've been involved with REITs since way back in the 1990s, and with a lot of investors now itching to get back into commercial real estate, uh, what is the current state of REITs and what makes them an appealing investment? Well, it's, it's good to be having this conversation now versus a year ago, that's for sure. Uh, you know, Right now, it's pretty exciting in terms of, you know, prices have rebounded for most sectors in the REIT space, and there's a, an energy and optimism in most of the sectors. It's, it's an appealing investment right now because coming out of the pandemic where, you know, there was REITs were just crushed in those first few weeks because people just, uh, markets do tend to overreact. But coming out of that, you realize that people are going to be spending more money uh, on trips, which is good for hotel REITs. Uh, they're going to be spending more money in, in buying things, uh, which is good for shopping center REITs and malls. Uh, they're going to be, it looks like there's going to be more movement, uh, which is good for apartments, particularly in uh, more suburban areas, which we'll, we can touch on. Uh, and they're going to continue to work from home to some degree and, and need technology. So that's good for people who own data centers and, you know, industrial REITs, which have had a, an incredible run for a few years now and continue to stay, I say, really strong. So it's it's actually, we've gone from sort of the darks of depression, uh, literally about a, a, a probably 13, 14 months ago to now feeling a, a tremendous amount of optimism about where things are going to go over the next 12 months. So it's it's a fun time to be in this space. Yeah. And like you said, it's, it's good to be here compared to a year ago. I think, um, you know, obviously, at knock on wood, we're we're uh, we're past. We have the worst behind us. But yeah. um, I think so. Yeah. You never know what's around the corner. But certainly the, the the sense of people is that we're past it. And so that's frankly as important as anything is what's the mindset of people. Yeah. And you mentioned moving forward. Um, I think one of the questions still in the air is with such uh, a move to work from home, uh, how does that affect the office? And, you know, how does how does that affect pricing? And, you know, what do you see in the office sector in the near future, maybe the next six or nine months? That is the one really big question mark uh, that I didn't mention in the optimism of the la answering the last question, because, you know, as everybody knows, there's just not that many companies planning to expand their footprint. Uh, that doesn't bode well for somebody that owns a bunch of office buildings. And the pandemic has completely turned on its head 
the thesis in the past, which was the safest place to be in office was in the gateway cities. And if you were in, you know, New York and San Francisco, you know, Boston, cities like that, that was a really secure investment. And now you're seeing as a result of the pandemic and more work from home, you're seeing a lot more challenge to that thesis because you don't see many companies talking about opening up and leasing a bunch of space in New York City. What you do see is uh, an ability to work sort of from wherever, which is causing employees to rethink sort of where do they want to spend their evenings, you know, when they've been working all day. And if they can be somewhere else and still work for the same company, that puts challenges on gateway cities. And if the footprint is smaller and you are talking about, uh, you know, three to four days a week or something that people are working from uh, in the office and not full time, long-term, that's going to change things. Now, office is resilient because most office leases are long-term leases. You know, they're typically three, five, 10-year leases. So you're not going to see an immediate impact, but the market thinks ahead and it looks down the road and it sees lease rollovers. And it's hard to imagine most office buildings, you know, I would think most any office building, when when that lease rolls, the rent is going to be less than what the tenant was paying at the time. And that puts real challenge on pricing for office rates. Yeah. And you mentioned, obviously, you know, offices are the least unlike apartments that are 12 months or so. Do you see um, with these fundamental changes in um, what employees expect, is, the, is this a, a timeline that's going to figure itself out in the next three, five, 10 years? Or is this a fundamental change in how office operates? My gut is that it's going to be a fairly fundamental change that is going to, there's just, it's hard to imagine a scenario where tenants are going to be occupying the same amount of space, which means that for landlords to make money, they're going to need more tenants in those same buildings. And so you're looking for where are those opportunities going to be to bring in new tenants, and that's more challenging. And so it's entirely possible that this gets right-sized over a couple of years. Uh, but in the near term, as you look at it, it's sort of hard to see how uh, how the old model is going to work in, in today's world. I, I do think we're headed toward a fairly fundamental shift in how people do their jobs during the day. Yeah. And so it's, it's not, people keep talking about getting back to normal. It sounds like in the office space, it's not, that's not quite an option. Yeah. Everybody gets, uh, I think all of us are sort of sick of hearing the phrase, the new normal, but you know, that is probably as much as we hate hearing it is probably an accurate way to describe it. I I don't see a scenario where I think 95% of American businesses are not just simply going back to exactly the way it was pre-pandemic. There will be some. You know, you look at Amazon, Amazon is insisting that its office footprint is going to remain unchanged. But then you look at, at Google and Facebook and they're going the opposite way saying, you know, we're not sure we care when anybody comes back into the office. So it's it's going to have changes. There's no no way around it. And it's I don't know that anybody really knows yet what the impact's going to be. But it's that that uncertainty is what drives the challenges for office REITs because you really have to think hard if you want to make a long-term investment. Let's let's go put a as an institutional investor, let's make a big bet on office right now. I don't think you're going to see a lot of people doing that. You mentioned difficulties faced in New York and San Francisco. 
Um, maybe a year or nine months ago, there was a lot more concern that the office sector would be decimated in these places. Um, but now that we have a little more perspective, how do you see these major urban markets emerging from COVID-19? Well, right now they're just, they're, they are hemorrhaging a little bit and they are doing, you know, whatever they can to keep their tenants. They're trying to be proactive in working with their tenants. What they're really focused on, I think, where the office REITs have done a very good job is at least they are aware of this. They're not in denial because they're going to their tenants proactively to say, OK, you, you're leasing 120,000 feet. Let's talk. And, you know, what, maybe a maybe a floor plate of 95,000 feet would make more sense, which is so much smarter than just hoping, holding your breath and hoping, because then what happens is the tenant up and leaves and goes and finds a a 70,000 square foot building somewhere else. And I think that where uh, the, the, the REITs have done a good job is being very proactive in, in taking on the situation. We've learned through history that ignoring a problem never really works. You need to take control of the problem. And, and maybe what you do is you figure out a different use for some of that space uh, than you were thinking about beforehand. And that's where that's where I think we have really smart people in real estate and some of the office REITs obviously also have really smart people there. And, you know, they may decide that uh, we're going to put in, you know, a couple floors of industrial, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll knock up the floor and, and make it a two story thing on the first floor so that we can have a semi-industrial building on floors one and two. You know, it's it, people are creative in real estate. I do give them that. I, people will figure this out, but I think it will just take time. The flip side of that question are institutional investors looking towards those, the secondary markets, the suburban areas? Is that kind of where the, they're turning their gaze? I think it certainly is much more attractive right now. Uh, that was an area where institutional investors had that ha they had largely shunned over the past several years. It was really hard as a if you were a, a, a somebody who was a, either a multifamily REIT or or a retail REIT or an office REIT that 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 played in, on the fringes and not in big cities, you were largely ignored. But now we are seeing a lot more attention and focus by institutional investors that it was always the case you could make money in these suburban and secondary markets. It's just the risk profile was a little bit different. And now you're seeing that the risk profiles are evening up a little bit there's now as much risk in investing in, you know, downtown big city stuff as there is suburban, which causes institutional investors to take a different look at things and say that risk profile now I, I like. And I think it's a better a better investment thesis than it was a few years ago. As far as retail goes, brick and mortar will continue to see challenges. Do you see retail focused REITs? looking into adjacent areas or, you know, what's their response to retail's challenges? Yeah, not, not so much. I don't see it not so much moving into other areas, but, but certainly more critically assessing the tenant mix that they have and finding the right tenants that are going to drive traffic. I think that they're finding that post pandemic people still do want to go out. Uh, online shopping has been huge, but, frankly, being cramped up a little bit has caused people to appreciate going out to um, a, a well-located shopping center that has pretty cool amenities and things to do maybe for the kids while you're doing this or that uh, and buying something. So, you know, having the right restaurants 
on the on the pads in the shopping center, the right experiential stuff. I think you'll see a lot more in retail of of different kinds of play of opportunities for a non-traditional, you know, you always think of, okay, well, that's going to be a Target or that's going to be a, 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 a Kohl's or something. But I think, again, we have really smart people in retail and I think they'll start to think that there's, I'm going to put something there that's going to drive traffic. And while they're there, they'll probably go across the street and, 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 and shop and do this or that from that standpoint. So it's, that's where I see is that I think shopping center owners are really reassessing their tenant mix and trying to figure out, is this the right mix of tenants that are going to drive traffic? And I think a lot of it is, is, is they've, you know, you always used to say that the, the, you know, you'd hear that online was going to kill retail, that nobody was ever going to go to a store again, brick and mortar was dead. And what we're finding is that even the online, the huge online uh, companies are finding that a physical presence drives more online traffic. And so the, re- the, the the shopping center REITs have figured that out and they're actually, they don't view them as enemies. They view them as this is a potential tenant for somebody that might be a, a mostly an online company. They've learned that their online traffic improves when they have a physical location. And so they're actually looking to rent space. So it's, again, we've got really smart people in real estate that fi- that if you have a really high quality plot of land, you're going to, you know, these people are going to figure out a way to, to, to make money and do well with that piece of land. It maybe look different than it did five years ago, but it will still be successful. You mentioned the experiential nature of retail. I think if you asked someone last June or July about experiential retail, they would laugh. Um, you know, we were actively avoiding each other at that time. From where we are now, are people looking forward to the social nature of shopping? And, you know, is, quote unquote, going shopping still an important activity? I think that's what I'm hearing in boardrooms that I'm in is that, um, you know, we as Americans are inherently social uh, creatures and we actually, you know, it, it's, it's been nice to be uh, at home and it's obviously provided great family time. But it, but but there's also a, a, a social a piece that has been lacking for you know more than a year. And there is a drive to go out and do things. And so what the the brick and mortar uh, landlords are saying, OK, what am I going to put here to drive traffic? I mean, pre-pandemic, you saw, uh, you know, like a huge influx of of gyms uh, that went into shopping centers, which don't really drive traffic. You go to the gym, you go sweat and you come back and go home. You know that obviously those shut down during the pandemic. And I'm just not sure you're going to see the next time. Will you see them renting that space to a gym or will they find a different use for that that might keep people lingering in the shopping center longer? Yeah, it's almost a a holistic view of of a a store's place within a a larger larger property. That's exactly right. I mean, the, the whole key in brick and mortar is how many minutes is the is the customer going to stay in your shopping center? That's where the revenue gets generated. And so what they're looking for is ways to cause people to spend more time when they go out there as opposed to just going directly into the store, getting what they need and turning around and going home. Yeah. And you mentioned the the social nature of, of the human species and uh, being in Chicago where CCM Institute's located and 
these first nice days of summer, seeing, you know, everybody just run to the beach, run to the restaurants, run outside. It, it, it really drives the point home. It does. It's it's summer is there's nothing to beat good weather to get people out and and wanting to do things and wanting to interact and do something fun. And, you know, we people, frankly, have not spent much money uh, while they've been at home. People have canceled vacations. Uh, you know, maybe they did some improvements to their house. But uh, we most people did not have not spent the kind of money over the last 12 months that they typically would. And so therefore, there's a willingness to to spend more. And that's where I think that, uh, you know, shopping center REITs and, and um, other others that, that play in that space are saying, how can I get more of the consumer dollar? You know, obviously, retail office, these are major players. Um, is there a market with a surprising outlook for those who may not be especially familiar with REITs? I think probably an offshoot that maybe it's a contrarian view, but I think a lot of people, this goes back to what we've been talking about before. I, most people would probably say that, okay, this is, this is surely going to kill malls. You know, you, you talk about that's different than an open air shopping center, but, a, but an enclosed mall are, are, is that just going to completely die? And certainly there are going to be some that, that, you know, maybe it's in a tertiary market that that doesn't drive a lot of traffic there will be some problems there but some of these malls are on incredible real estate and what's going to happen is you've got really smart people that own these these malls and they're going to figure out a way to repurpose them and drive traffic again it'll be, look different it probably won't be a, a you know a, a big enclosed building with Macy's on one end and Nordstrom on the other but I do think that that's if you're looking for a an unusual thing that I, I think that still is is has not rebounded fully in stock price. I could see a scenario where uh, mall owners over time, there's there's some serious issues they have to contend with in terms of capital. But I do believe that uh, the malls may get repurposed in a way that make them very interesting opportunities down the road. Gotcha. And is there a particular um class of mall that that you would find especially appealing, whether it's high end or uh, suburban versus urban, or, you know, if if you had to parse through uh, the mall market in general? I think that there's there's more opportunity in the suburban area probably than the urban, because frankly, there's just more space to do things. So I do think that you have a little bit more flexibility in what you want to do there. And I think as we touched on it earlier, the 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 flight a little bit of of residences out more towards suburbia from than from the central business district or or sort of in town locations is going to give people more if more people are out in the suburbs living then that gives more opportunity for suburban malls to sort of recast themselves into something that will be more interesting for people to go to so if I had to guess I think that may be the more it, it certainly is. The place where there's the it was the most depressed from a stock price standpoint, and and even we've seen bankruptcies in in two mall companies that you know had a lot of suburban malls. So it's that's where it's it'll be really interesting to see what happens with that land. But some of that land is really high quality land, and we'll see what somebody can do with it. Obviously, you mentioned industrial has been kind of the all star of the last uh, 15, 16 months, and there's been talk of institutional investors looking to increase the amount of uh, industrial property in their portfolios from 
somewhere around 15% to upwards of 20s or 22%. Um, while the boom in, in, in industrial isn't surprising, you know, where do you see, uh, how do you see the growth and in investment affecting the industrial sector? Well, it's, we touched on it earlier for two or three years. I think people have been saying industrial prices just surely can't go higher and, or cap rates can't go lower. And they just keep doing that. Uh, it is something that, um, you know, you, I remember reading a couple of years ago is the boom over for industrial. And that clearly has not been the case at all. And so I think from that perspective, you have a situation where money is going to continue to flow into that sector and it's still a sector that people want to be in. And as a result, uh, industrial prices, I think, are, continu- are continuing to stay really, really strong. So it, it is, <clears throat> it's hard to believe that at the cap rates we're talking about, that, that the industrial sector could still be viewed as a go- growth sector. But at, that what that's clearly saying, where, where their market prices are right now, is they, they people still believe there's room for growth in that space. And with continued interest from the institutional side, uh, is there an impact on non-institutional investors? I think the impact is it's just harder. Um, you know, it, there's more nervousness. Are you investing at the top of the market if you're not, you know, if you're a retail investor or you're thinking about jumping into REITs, and you look at all of these industrial REITs that are probably trading at their all-time highs, is that is your instinct is, okay, well, maybe that's not where I should be putting uh, my money. But if you look two years ago, you'd have seen the same exact fact situation and you would have made a lot of money as a non-institutional investor investing in industrial REIT stocks. So it, it is, I think it's a, a a challenge for the sort of the the non-institutional investor to to look to take a long-term view but i do think long-term industrial is still an incredibly attractive asset class and i do think that uh, it merits attention even if it is trading at an all-time high yeah and and looking at uh the REIT world in general um there's been some consolidation with uh equity commonwealth's acquisition of monmouth uh which is a one of the larger industrial REITs. Um, do you see more consolidation of REITs in the future? And is that a trend that will extend out into into the next year or two? You know, that's interesting. It's an interesting question. So many years, uh, it seems like every year uh, people uh, say, oh, I think this is going to be a year where there's increased M&A activity in the REIT space. But I really do believe that. I really do think that there, there are some factors in at play that are going to cause more consolidation in the space. I mean, it, some of the things we've been talking about, we were talking about repurposing real estate, for example, and, and there's some great real estate that you can repurpose and make a lot of money, but that costs a lot of money to do. You need a lot of capital to, to do that. And some companies just don't have either the capital or the expertise to repurpose. They're very good at buying buildings and generating income from those buildings, but they don't necessarily have the creativity to figure out a completely different use for that land and repurpose it and spend many millions of dollars to do that. And so I think in that situation, you're going to see companies say, look, we could do that, but I think somebody else is probably better at that. And Maybe the, the, the answer is, you know, 
look, we were trading at 20 pre-pandemic. We went down to five. Um, you know, now we're up back up to, say, 13 or 14. I think we can get to 20 in, in a few years. But, boy, that's going to take a lot of time, effort and money. Maybe maybe it will be smarter for my stockholders who probably came in at, you know, five or 10. Maybe we should think about selling the company uh, and, 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 and getting out. And then if you're on the buy side, I think that, you know, for a number of these REITs, their stock is trading quite well now. It's, a, it's a, an attractive currency to use uh, in doing, say, a stock-for-stock stock merger with another competitor. And so I, I do think that there's a lot of factors at play that may well drive more M&A activity this year. Certainly, you know, maybe we're already halfway through the year, but if you look out over the next 12 months, I'll be very surprised if there isn't a, a decent amount of M&A activity in our space. Yeah. And for those who kind of always predicted the uh, the cooling off of the M&A, um, it seems like the, the consolidation isn't so much uh, inevitability. It's just the conditions of, of the market right now are driving that. I think it's a common. Yeah, I think it's a combination of the con conditions in the market. And in some cases, you know, people have been at this for quite a while. And I think they've said maybe it's time for somebody else to take a, a run at it. It's always really interesting. And real estate is one of the most personal classes of stocks there is. Uh, you know, the CEO of, say, IBM is and when they're deciding whether or not to do uh, uh, to, to sell the company, they're looking at that as truly a business decision. What's best for IBM? They don't have, a, 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 you know, they, they didn't grow this company from the beginning. In many cases in our space, you have companies that the founders are still heavily involved in the company. And these people have invested their entire life into this company. So it's much more of an emotional aspect to M&A in real estate than other sectors, which makes it that makes it more challenging to accomplish some of this stuff. But I do think, uh, you know, some we're pretty we're a pretty mature industry now. When you look back to all the IPOs that started all of this in the early 90s, it's a pretty mature space. There's probably more public companies than there need to be right now. And so that combined with what's going on in the market right now, I, that's those are the reasons why I think you could see increased M&A activity. And. If if this activity does continue, um, you know, what's the overall impact to commercial real estate as a whole, if there is a significant one? I think that uh, the overall uh, impact, I think, is positive because then you'll end up with uh, real estate in the hands of, of people who really know what to do with it. Uh, and I think critical mass is really big in any any industry sector, including real estate. And the bigger a company is, is, the more nimble they're able to be, the more they can access debt markets, the more they can access different sources of capital. We, we still have public company REITs that, are, that have a very small market cap, thinly traded, uh, not, you know, not something that institutional investors are willing to jump in. But if you combine a couple of those companies, you end up with a much larger company and then institutional investors do have an interest because there is liquidity in that stock and that will drive uh, an attractive yield potentially. And, and it ends up a win win for everybody. So I think in uh, 
the impact to commercial real estate as a whole, I, overall, I think it's it's very positive. There's there's a lot of real estate out there. Uh, consolidating the the number of REITs out there isn't going to hurt real estate one bit, I don't think. Yeah, and and for my final question, you know, circling back to uh, to the start of our conversation, you mentioned that this is you know this is a, a time for optimism in in the market um, and coming out of the pandemic now people are very excited just to you know to get back to to, to doing business um, in the next 12 months or so do you see any potential speed bumps for REITs and anything that could cause uh, that overall outlook to dim inflation and interest rates I mean the, the there's still a significant amount of money being invested in REITs that is very yield sensitive and when interest rates are very low, a REIT is a very attractive investment vehicle because somebody's looking at what they can get from a bond and saying, you know, I think I'll, I'd rather take 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 this money and invest it in a REIT. But the but when interest rates rise, historically we've seen people pull their money out of the REIT market because they feel like the returns they're getting from from bonds uh, at that point in time make it worthwhile to invest and. While a REIT is in, in no way a bond because there is more significant risk, it is still a fairly stable income flow. You know, if you're owning um, a property that is leased to tenants that are on longer term leases, you can fairly consistently measure the cash flow and what the the, the earnings are going to be. And so if interest rates are up, then you're comparing it against a, a, a different animal. And so I, I do think that's one of the areas that people watch the most is if inflation you know, increases and interest rates drive up, that that has the impact to has the possibility of limiting all of the optimism that we've been talking about in terms of what happens in the in the REIT market. Yeah. And and at least right now, looking forward, um, you know, how much of a, of a cloud do you see that being? I think people still feel pretty good about it. I think that everybody sees a, obviously a little bit of uptick in inflation and interest rates, but I do think that people believe that uh, the Fed is going to be very focused on not uh, having a significant increase in interest rates, and they're going to do what they need to do to help with that. And so from that perspective, I, I think people are, are, are willing to accept some increase without making a dramatic shift in their investment profile or, or how they um, how they put their capital to use, but uh, so I feel still feel like the risk is not high. I think it's sort of in the low to moderate range that uh, that significant things happen that that cause people to turn away from real estate. So overall, I think it's still a very optimistic outlook. But that is the one area that people would be concerned about. Yeah, great. And I, I think that's a perfect place to wrap things up that, uh, you know, the the outlook or the future might be bright, but uh, we can't fool ourselves and pretend like there's nothing out there that could that could trip things up down down the road. Always best to put cautiously before optimistic is, I think, the better way to look at it. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Uh, well, David, thank you very much for joining Commercial Investment Real Estate Podcast. Thanks very much, Nick. I appreciate it. Thanks for listening to this episode of Commercial Investment Real Estate Podcast. Head to SoundCloud, iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. Don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe. Join us next month for a brand new episode of Commercial Investment Real Estate Podcast, featuring another leading figure from the world of commercial real estate. 